tomorrow, of course, is the, the 4th of July. And so I've been thinking about America. I'm thinking about this question, what does it mean to be American? It's, uh, of course, that's a question that we can approach from a thousand different perspectives and bring a thousand different interpretations to. Um, in some sense, I'm going to give a, an idiosyncratic interpretation of that question by looking at the what I'm calling the spiritual foundations of America, how America was set up. And, and as you may know, the, the founding fathers were influenced by this stream of thought called the Enlightenment. It was the stream of thought that had been around for about a century before the American Revolution. And many of the ideas that they, they employed came from this Enlightenment tradition, you know, government derives from sent, descent of the ascent of the governed and separation of powers, so you have checks and balances. All this came from these writers and was worked into the way our government was set up. And all that I would call the the how of democratic government. How do you set up a democratic government? But what's more interesting is the why. Why did they want to set up a democratic government? And one clue to that is this very strange phrase, very famous phrase from the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson says that we all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, life and liberty are are relatively straightforward, but pursuit of happiness. He's not talking about we all have the right to go out and have a nifty time, you know. In a way, he was talking about something along the lines of Aristotle's eudaimonia, a, a whole life satisfaction. In a way, it was his way of, of framing freedom of religion, that the fact that the state wouldn't compel us to follow one value system or another. You know, and it, it's important to remember at the time that the Declaration was being written, in every European state, the the church was associated with the state. And, you know, if you're doing something the church didn't like, the police could come after you, this sort of thing. Another clue that we get, what's, what's meant by this happiness, um, comes from, a, comes from a, not an American writing, but a, a German poet, German poet by the name of Schiller. And I'm going to read this passage. It's a bit overblown in in poetic language, but I'll I'll explain it in a moment. Um, It's Schiller's famous poem, The Ode to Joy. And so the translation is, Joy, spark of divinity, daughter of Elysium, we enter burning with fervor, heavenly being your sanctuary. Your magic brings together what custom has sternly divided, all men shall become brothers wherever your gentle wings hover. So very, very fancy poetic language. But again, this idea that this joy is the joy that comes from being deeply in touch with our potential. You know, you could say fully realizing our potential, living from the deepest authenticity. Um, 
And of course, the, the insight, one of the insights here is that when people are living that way, connection naturally happens. You know, our, our deepest nature is compassion. And the more I'm actualized, the more I'm in touch with my, my deepest potential, the more I'm just in touch with compassion, the more I'm just open to other points of view, you know. Um, and not that, not that everyone who is in that state would be, carbon copies are identical with each other, but we'd be able to share different views in a way that was, that was rich, that, that we're, we're benefiting from that, you know. In some ways, this is the same this is the same archetypal truth that Buddhism realized in naming the Sanghas as one of the three jewels. In the, the traditional formulation in Buddhism is that, you know, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And the Sangha, the gathering of people who meditate together, is seen as one of those three precious supports. And in fact, there's this great quote. This is from the Upada Sutra. The Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, This is half of the holy life, Lord. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. Don't say that, Ananda. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a monk has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. And so the Buddha really valorizing how important it is to have these authentic relationships. You might say that it was, you know, the Founding Fathers, especially Jefferson, almost wanted, almost were envisioning something where it would be like a nationwide Sangha, where everyone would be doing this work of self-actualization because they were, they were enjoying this freedom. Now we get more clues to this, more clues to what the Founding Fathers had in mind in visual form, in, in how they, they put together what's called the Great Seal of the United States. And so this is, a, this is an odd you know, two-part, you know, front and back seal. We see it on the back of every $1 bill. So just to remind you, these will be familiar images. Let me just... Pull this out because no one's on Zoom. So one side is this. The unfinished pyramid has 1776 at the bottom. At the bottom, the Latin Navis Ordo Seclorum, a new ordering of the ages. And then the, the magical eye completing the point of the pyramid and Anuit Chaptis. Essentially, God has favored our undertaking. The divine has favored what we're doing. And at the more you know, conventional level, the, the new ordering of the ages is the fact that we were, they were starting the first democratically elected government in, in modern time, you know, a government where the rulers would be chosen by the people. But the, the pyramid itself, and especially the unfinished pyramid, um, this is a, 
especially the unfinished period with an eye on the top. This is a classic Masonic symbol. Um, you know, it's funny, none of, the, none of the founding fathers, to the best of my knowledge, were devout Christians, but some of them were Freemasons. Um, and this is, this is definitely right from Freemasonry. And it's, it's a powerful spiritual image. It really is suggesting that unfinished pyramid is us. And it's really saying that, you know, how can I say, the, the highest levels of attainment, it's not going to be me in charge. You know, it's not going to be ego, as I understand it, running the show. You know, the highest levels of, of attainment are about humility, surrender, letting go, allowing. They're about being, becoming more and more transparent so that something else can shine through us. Now the other side, the other part of this coin, get this image. Of course this famous image, and this is modified to make the seal of the president and a whole bunch of other seals. Um, and of course as an eagle, um, eagles are fascinating. They, the eagles have been sacred in many cultures around the world. Uh, ancient China, ancient Egypt, certainly in Native American traditions. Um, and the eagle often connotes, you know, certainly there's, certainly there's a tremendous power and self-sufficiency, um, but there's also a nobility, a kind of honor. Um, you know, living with honor and dignity. And of course, honor and dignity can be, you know, that can get one-sided, that can go into a place of, of pride or self-aggrandizement. Um, but to combine the honor and dignity with, you know, the message we got from the Unfinished Pyramid, with humility, um, that, that's, a very, that's very powerful and a very hard balance to keep, to live with honor and humility. Um, I think Gandhi, toward the end of his life, was, was doing a good job of, of embodying that balance. The, the eagle has a shield. Of course, the importance of boundaries. And, you know, boundaries are, having good boundaries is very important in, in our spiritual work. Um, and, of course, in one claw... He has 13 arrows, and in another claw he has the olive branch with 13 olives. And so very conventionally representing power, you know, the power of war and peace. Um, at a more mystical level, you could say that is the yin and the yang. You know, the yin and the yang that we both draw, you know, we draw on both as part of our nature. Um, or we could say that it's it what Buddhism conceives as this powerful duality between wisdom and compassion. You know, the, the arrows having the, the focused and penetrating quality of wisdom, the olive branch having the, the peaceful and nourishing quality of compassion. So then the above the eagle's head 
there's there's the the thirteen stars and the figure of the uh, the seal of Solomon. Um, and so at this point, you might be wondering why the thirteens. And of course, the conventional answer is well, there were thirteen colonies. But it's funny. Vermont and Kentucky weren't among the first thirteen colonies, but they could have been. They were admitted. They were both admitted as the fourteenth and fifteenth state early in the seventeen nineties. The Founding Fathers really wanted 13 colonies because of the mystical associations in numerology of the number 13. 13 is associated with, with powerful transformation. It's also associated with camaraderie. And so these were qualities that they, they wanted to you know, imbue the new, the new nation with. Um, among other things, the, the, the 13 stars can be put in that seal of Solomon, which is very powerful because it's symmetrical. It, it's pointing energy in all directions, you know. So it's a very powerful symbol. And then above the eagle, we have this, this famous motto, E Pluribus Unum, which, which is really astonishing in so many ways. It's also printed on our coins, E Pluribus Unum, from many one. Um, the conventional reading is, of course, you know, the, the separate colonies become one nation or the, the, the separate individual people become one people, you know. Certainly it's possible to read into this statement a, a valorization of diversity. Obviously, the, the founding fathers would not have known of, you know, equity and inclusion work in our modern sense. Um, and I think it's, it's worth noting, you know, even in our modern time, really the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is a yoga. It's a yoga that is just as insightful but ju- and just as demanding as any of the classical yogas and demands all the commitment and everything else that all the other yogas demand, you know? Another way to read E Pluribus Unum is, this is a more Jungian reading, um, which probably the Founding Fathers would not have had in mind. Uh, Within the psyche, there's inner otherness, you know, and often we're at odds with our inner others, you know, I don't want to feel that part, I don't want to hear that part, you know, or, you know, or, uh, you know, inner critics and this sort of thing. Part of, of healing, the work of healing, part of personal growth work is creating this inner concord, you know, this inner harmony, um, so that the many are brought into a kind of unity. And again, this unity is not run by ego as I conceive it. It's, it's, it's lived out of the wholeness, you know, and this this inner ego, you know, living, of course, from this inner ego is, and this, I mean, from this inner concord helps to promote social concord. And, of course, the, the, the final meaning of e pluribus unum, it speaks to the non-dual state, the non-dual state that is really the goal of Buddhism and all religions, the moving out of the word the world of duality out of plurality into the non-dual unity 
I, I, I don't talk too much about non-duality because it's hard to talk about. As soon as I'm talking about it, then I'm creating duality. I'm the one talking about it, you know. Um, but really, this, this powerful non-dual truth is expressed in e pluribus unum. So, those are a lot of high ideals. And I think I'll say that for, in my mind, it's easy to imagine that the, these, these well-meaning folks at the end of the 17th century, they thought that this was a little more within grasp. It was, it was conceivable that if you just gave people freedom, what they would do is they would they'd go out and they'd, they'd you know, cultivate themselves and they'd, they'd get in touch with their inner potential and, and find that, that deep satisfaction of, of being fully who they are. Um, obviously, that's not what happens when you give people freedom. They play video games and stuff like that. They do, you know. Um, and I'll say also, the times that we live in now, um, I mean, if if we asked the people at the end of the 18th century, do you have distractions? They would have, they would have said, yes, there were some distractions. They didn't have any distractions compared to the distractions we have now. Like it's just, it's mind boggling. The, 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 the level of distractions that we have created for ourselves. Um, also a lot of the people living in that time would have spent most of their days, if not all day, surrounded by nature, you know, now we have to make a special trip to go to nature, you know? And of course, being in nature tends to quiet us, calm us, make us more centered, you know? But we, we're, we're, we've constructed a world where we're, that's largely absent from our experience. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with having to do whatever work we can do, you know? And... Um, Earlier, you know, over the last couple of months, I gave a talk on the six paramitas, you know, cultivating any of those paramitas, especially discipline, is very important. Um, you know, certainly working with the eightfold path is very important. Um, and how to say, I mean, starting where we are now, the work of healing the work of developing our potential is that much harder given the, the culture that we're starting from. But it's that much more valuable because we live in a world that is that much more hungry for healing, that much more hungry for listening, for presence, you know. And so I think I'll, I'll conclude my talk by trying to rescue this, uh, this strange word, patriotism. Um, patriotism is often a word that, that leaves a bad taste in the, in the mouths of people in Berkeley because it's associated with this very, you know, jingoistic black and white, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I'd like to give another spin on it, you know. Perhaps, perhaps like you, I was born in this country. I've lived my whole life in this country. Everything I am, in some sense, is due to influences from this country. 
you know, even when I'm criticizing the government or being countercultural, I'm even doing that in a very American way, you know. And so acknowledging that profound debt, how can I do the work to cultivate the best of myself so that I'm really bringing the best of myself to any kind of public discourse, any kind of interactions with my fellow Americans. Um, you know, I, I think it's a, you know, part of the, how can I say, part of the, the, the individualist bias we have in America that, you know, my meditation belongs to me, my spiritual work belongs to me, you know. Whereas Buddhism would say, no, my meditation belongs to all sentient beings. My spiritual work belongs to all sentient beings, you know, and and so with that perspective, to what extent can I do this work with the intention of bringing the best of myself and contributing it back to my country, you know, that I would say is is a is a very profound sort of patriotism. So with that, I'll share the quote sheet. So I have the Schiller poem. Incidentally, this, that Schiller poem was the poem that Beethoven, in the original German, Beethoven set it to music in his Ninth Symphony. Um, so I have the Schiller poem, I have the quote from the Upada Sutta. From the, the Roman playwright Terence, I am a human being, nothing human is alien to me. At the oh, to the folks in the yeah, those there are more. Oh, yeah, there are more. Here. Oh well, all right. So the, uh, there magically are enough. Okay, whatever. All right. From uh, Saint Augustine, from the Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I think of that in many ways an analog to the to the unfinished pyramid, you know, the rest we find in that surrender at the top of the pyramid. George Eliot said, But what we call our despair is often only the painful eagerness of unfed hope. <laughs> Henri Frederic Emile said, Learn to be what you are and learn to resign with good grace all that you are not. Robert Louis Stevenson said, To be what we are, to become what we are capable of becoming, is the only end of life. A Jung quote that I've had on the quote sheets before the experience of the self is always a defeat for the ego. So, in other words, that journey up to the eye of the period, the, the pyramid, you know, for me, you know, I'm going to be somehow defeated or have to surrender to get to that, you know. Ramana Maharshi said, grace is ever present. All that is necessary is that you surrender to it. And it really is, it's been impressed on me more and more over the years that 
we're all surrounded by tremendous love all the time. We're all surrounded by healing all the time. And really all we have to do is get out of the way and, and let it enter us, you know. Sri Nisgardata said, All separation, every kind of estrangement and alienation is false. All is one. Eric Erickson, in a, in a really brilliant essay that he wrote, Life History in the Historical Moment, he said, In the end, it seems psychoanalysis cannot claim to have exhausted its inquiry into man's unconscious unless it asks what may be the inner arrest particular to adulthood. In other words, the stuckness in a, of adulthood. Not merely because the burden of pervasive immaturities, but as a consequence of the adult condition as such whether the times offer too few final choices of an overdefined kind or too many ill-defined and exchangeable roles. In other words, is the society saying that there's only here are the only three ways to be an adult? That doesn't really seem to be the case. Or here's 10,000 ways to be an adult. Mix and match as you like, you know, which is kind of overwhelming and confusing, you know. For it is only too obvious that so far as man's total development, so far as in, so far in man's total development, adulthood and maturity have rarely been synonymous. And it, it's something I've said before, but I really think the, the adults that live now in America, all of us, we're probably the most spoiled group of adults that have ever walked the face of the earth. You know, and I, I include myself as much as anyone, you know. I mean, we all have the internet in our pocket. Like, the, just the absurdity of that, you know. For Ananis Nin, life expands or shrinks according to one's courage. Zig Ziglar said, what you get by achieving your goals is not as important as what you become by achieving your goals. Marion Woodman, uh, an author for whom I have tremendous respect, I can't recommend her highly enough, the Jungian writer, wrote, having a body that is like a musical instrument, open enough to be able to resonate, literally resonate, with what is coming both from inside and from the outside, so that as one is able to surrender to powers greater than oneself. Henry Clough, oh wait, don't want to miss Saturn Salzburg, the, the Zen teacher. If we fall, we don't need self-recrimination or blame or anger. We need a reawakening of our intention and a willingness to recommit to be wholehearted once again. Henry Cloud said, boundaries define us. They define what is me and not me. A boundary shows me where I end and someone else begins, leading me to a sense of ownership. Knowing what I Knowing what I am to own and take responsibility for gives me freedom. Taking responsibility for my life opens up many different options. And really, I would say that in many ways, the, one of the great keys to our, to our greatness is just self-responsibility. You know, all the, the truly great people were deeply responsible people. Brene Brown said, authenticity is the daily practice of letting go who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. 
And of course, who we are is often not as pretty, not as admirable as who we think we ought to be, you know, but that's, that's our job. Race Mamenikin said, our virtues are wrapped up inside our limitations. It's only when we are in close proximity to others that we begin to intimately explore the boundaries of our virtues by slamming into our limitations. <laughs> That's wonderful. That, that book, incidentally, Rock the Boat, is one of the most insightful books I've ever read on, on romance. Rashid Ungularu said, the energy we show up with is more often than not the energy we encounter. You know, this profound way that the world is reflecting us back to ourselves over and over again. Mark and Angel Chernoff said, our character is revealed at our highs and lows. Be humble at the mountaintops. Be steadfast in the valleys. Be faithful in between. Sheila Murray Bethel said, one of the most courageous things you can do is identify yourself, know who you are, what you believe in, and where you want to go. Benjamin Kofi Kwanzaa said, a life well spent is a life driven by purpose. Sharon Alder said, staying silent is like a slowly growing cancer to your soul and a trait of a true coward. There's nothing intelligent about not standing up for yourself. You may not win every battle. However, everyone will know at least what you stood for. You. And Lair Cutchinson said, Bravery is the choice to show up and listen to another person, be it a loved one or perceived foe, even when it is uncomfortable, painful, or the last thing you want to do. <laughs> <laughs>